Well, I'm going to argue the best sports movie of all time is the movie Hoosiers. You can disagree with me if you want to. But it documents basketball in Indiana in the 1950s. And we have a coach with a troubled past, seven small-town farm kids, and a town drunk that form a team. What is the foundation of this team coming together to win a state championship in Indiana? How did these characters come together to accomplish such a large task? Well, today we see five scenes of Jesus' earthly ministry. What does it take to participate on his team in his kingdom? What kind of team is it? Do we have what it takes to be on it? What's the objective? What does it mean to win on this team? And who is this one leading this coach? Today we're going to see the character of Jesus' ministry. A ministry where he powerfully restores people to display the reign of his kingdom. So again, if you're going to hear anything this morning, here is the idea that I think these five vignettes tell us this morning. The character of Jesus' ministry is that he powerfully restores people to display the reign of his kingdom. Again, Mark moves fast. It's quite quickly that we get right to the action. So let's look together, shall we? Mark chapter 1, these five stories, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Please pay attention to God's word. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath... He entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately... He left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. 
And immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, and said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Move with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. We are going through the book of Mark this winter and this spring. And my hope is that you would be reading along with us. Like I said before, probably taking an hour and a half to read through the whole book of Mark. And when you're reading through Mark, and as we're going through Mark, both in our community groups and here on Sunday mornings, and we look at who this Jesus is clearly, not our perceptions of Jesus or what we think of Jesus, but what the Word says. I hope we would be asking this question. Who is Jesus? Who is he? And second question, what is his purpose? I think even if you've read Mark many times and you're Christian and you know who Jesus is, that he can surprise you in what he says to you, when he calls you to. As we look at Mark together, hopefully we can be shaped by what, who Jesus is, his character, into our own formation. Now we're going through large chunks together as we preach through the book of Mark. We could take two years in it, but we're just going to take about 20 sermons in it. And as we look at this book of Mark, I hope that in your community groups, you would also be seeing sections that we can't cover as well. So again, we're going to look through a large section today. I'm not going to be able to get into all the intricate details. But again, in your community groups, you can ask some of those questions. What does this mean or that mean? And talk about it and dialogue about it. So I encourage you, again, reading individually, talking about it in your community groups, letting the scripture form you. Well, again, we see five scenes in this passage in the latter part of Mark chapter 1. The first one is this calling of the disciples. You understand at this time there were many rabbis, many teachers throughout that region. 
And they would have people follow them. These scribes or maybe, maybe um, disciples, those that were learning to be able to learn under this rabbi. But Jesus has a different way of going about the way that he teaches and the way that he calls his disciples. One, if you wanted to be called a disciple, you would have to do all this studying and all this work. And then if you were worthy enough, you would ask the teacher, the rabbi, if you could study under him. But here we see that it is the opposite. Jesus goes and calls the disciples himself. Disciples don't come to him, but he goes to them. And you can see that Jesus, he calls people that really haven't done the coursework, that don't have the degree, don't have the credentials. He calls fishermen, not the typical people that you would think would be following around rabbis as disciples. There's also something very interesting about how Jesus calls people. He tells people to follow him. Follow me, he says. That's not the typical way that rabbis talked, right? They would say things like, let's follow the Torah. Let's follow God. But he says, follow me. This is a different kind of dude. It's a different kind of rabbi. That's not playing by the typical rules. And you also see the intriguing thing that Benjamin talked about a little bit earlier. These guys, maybe they haven't heard much about Jesus at all. But they drop their nets. Maybe not even knowing who this guy is. They leave their profession and follow him. Well, the very idea of calling, it still has sway today. This idea of calling, of Jesus calling people. We talk about that when it comes to to vocation or jobs, that I'm called to something. Usually we think about it in the job of ministry, but we also have people that can feel I'm called to being a physician or being a lawyer or whatever it might be. I'm called to this vocation and job. And the idea of having a right profession or a right job, it still has much sway in our culture today. But here's the thing about the way that Jesus calls people. He's saying, follow me. I'll make you. I'll form you. The primary call that Jesus calls people to is not simply a job, but to a person, to himself. Now, when you're called to him, he does something. I'll make you fishers of men. It should make us think a little bit about calling ourselves. See, even the disciples are going to struggle with vocation and job and what their job actually is. As we go through the book of Mark, we'll see them struggle with each other and fight with each other. Who is the greatest in this ministry? Who has the most importance? And you're going to see as they go through this ministry, they're going to face struggles and hardships and all these things. And you see that Jesus' call to himself is what will shape them to be able to do the job that they're supposed to do.
You might feel like you might not have the greatest calling in your job or vocation or might not feel a call at all. Some of us on the under end might think our job is super, super important. And because of that, we stress about it often. We wake up anxious or in jobs where we might yell at people or get frustrated. It's very important to see that God does not call us primarily to a job or vocation, but He calls us to Himself. That no matter what job we have at the moment, no matter what position we're in, whether we've got a graduate degree and now we're at home with kids, or whether we have no degree at all and we have an important responsibility in our job, that in those situations, in those cases, to know that ultimately our calling is to Christ. He's called us to Himself. And in that, no matter where we are, ups and downs of our career, or where God has positioned us, He is with us. That is our primary, primary calling. If you've seen the movie Hoosiers, this main character is this guy named Norman Dale, and you see he is struggling through calling and vocation. He had a perfect job. He was a college coach and a champion, but what happened is he got so angry in his job, he hit one of his players. You start to realize as this kind of unfolds in the movie Hoosiers that now he has been relegated from this college coach to now this small town high school coach. And these seven players, as they come together for this season. You can see as the pressure weighs, as they're winning games. And you can see he's again wrestling with what it means to have vocation and job and calling. That is greater than simply winning. And instead of moments you see in the movie where you see you might want to berate a player or hit a player. Instead, he listens to them. He gives the reins to his coaching to someone else. Something has changed in him to see the job that he's supposed to do. He has been transformed. I would argue as Jesus starts his ministry, he's restoring the idea of job and vocation. Satisfaction is not what you have done, but on who he is. And as these disciples, you see, they go through major, major issues, all these things. What can help them survive the ups and downs of the job that they're supposed to do? It's finding their primary calling in him. Jesus invites these fishermen to be a part of restoration ministry. Well, then he takes them to Capernaum, does his ministry thing, teaching on the Sabbath. You can imagine maybe watching a TED Talk, right? And it's something that's really interesting. The speaker is really good. 
and you're like, man, this guy, he knows what he's talking about. He has authority on this subject. I want to listen. This is the same thing that's happened here. People are saying, man, this guy knows what he's talking about. He has authority. But then something happens in the middle of the talk. Imagine you're watching a TED Talk and something happens. Someone shouts in the crowd. And it's weird, right? The guy shouts like there's multiple of him, right? And that's what happens here. What have you done with us, it says, as these demons are speaking inside of this man? I mean, imagine being in a talk like that. You're like, what is going on? What is happening? Then imagine the speaker says, spirit, come out of him. Demon, come out. And then the demon comes out of the person. What would that make you think of the person's authority then? It would probably raise it to the next level. Like, this is strange. This is weird. I thought he knew what he was talking about. I thought he knew about a subject. But he's even at the next level that he commands demons. I know many of my friends that read the Gospels, they, they maybe see Jesus is simply this is a magician, right? He's doing these things to gather a crowd, and that's how Christianity expanded. But I don't think that's the case here. Jesus is not looking for this kind of attention. He doesn't want simply a demon to confess who he is, which the demon does, the Holy One of God. But he wants people to confess who he is. He wants people to see that he has authority over everything, even the spiritual world. Listen, I know that we live in an age where a lot of us spend times on our screens. We watch YouTube videos on speakers that we like, or maybe if we have less of an attention span, we watch TikTok videos that we think are fun. And we're formed by these people, influencers or whoever they might be. And that's kind of here what we're going to see. There are crowds. Humanity has not changed. People are interested in this Jesus and what he can do and all these things. And crowds will form around him as we see throughout the book of Mark. Crowds and crowds and crowds. But Jesus wants to do something different in people than just gather a crowd. He wants them to see that he has authority over all things and them and their lives. I do wonder if you think that Jesus has that type of authority. That he can reach through a screen, he can reach through a moment, he can reach through these things and touch the very nature of your heart and who you are. He has control over every realm. This isn't some separation. They say, this is something happening, this is something different than me, this is something I can just observe. No, this is something that is in your life. That he speaks to you. It has power over you. Because he made you 
and he created you. And that's what people are starting to see. Oh my, who is this guy that can control the demons? Will the crowd just be a crowd? Or will they actually come under his reign? you got to love this. You can't make this stuff up, right? You go from church that morning and you're going to have lunch at Peter's mother-in-law's place, right? And then you realize she's sick and can't serve, right? And he heals her. And then right away she gets up and starts serving them, right? Some of you might say, well, man, that is just chauvinism at its greatest, right? That's the Bible, Right? Right? And, oh yeah, make the mother-in-law do it, right? Yeah. You can't make this stuff up. This is not random. It's like this is like this actually happened, right? He's describing scenes and what's going on. But here's the thing, I don't think it's chauvinist. Because just earlier in Mark, we saw the angels served Jesus. And we see later. That Jesus serves his disciples. Jesus is trying to show us this is what it means to be under my reign. To serve. To care for others. If you want to be great, you should be the least. You should serve. You see, these responses, he's breaking in some different kind of kingdom. How he calls disciples. How he reigns over the spiritual realm. How he calls people to service and what responds to who he is in his kingdom. But then we start to have interpretations of what we want from Jesus. You see, that's what Simon does. Jesus goes off in the morning, and he spends time with his father in prayer. But Simon and the disciples are wondering, Jesus, listen, your ministry is picking up. It's getting going. Are you feeling it? Man, we're getting some traction here. Let's go for it. Let's tweet this, you know? Let's get an advertising campaign. I mean, the whole city was at my mother-in-law's doorstep. That's crazy. But you see how Jesus responds. The power of his ministry is not how many retweets he gets, how many subscribers he has. The power of his ministry is a relationship with his Father. We're in an age where you're supposed to sell yourself, promote yourself. Jesus continues to show fame is fleeting. Jesus isn't after simply gathering a crowd. Jesus is after transforming people. And this kingdom starts with a mustard seed. It starts with relying upon his Father. It starts with twelve. And there is where it changes the world. 
This isn't some simple strategy of Jesus. This is supernatural power. God's authority is not some gimmick. It's something real. It has to change people from the inside out. This is where the power comes from. I don't know about your days. Maybe they're chaotic. Emails flooding in. Text messages. Places to run your kids from this place to that place. Things that just consume you and take your time. And we can feel good about that in America. We're busy. I'm doing something. But you see that Jesus in the midst of this kind of thing stops in praise. If the Savior of the universe had to rely upon His Father in prayer, should we not also? See, don't make prayer simply something to add to your to-do list. Instead, prayer reorganizes all of your to-do list. It's what massages it, relaxes it, works on all of these things. Prayer is what allows the Spirit to work in these areas. Do you see that God is the one that changes and transforms in your schedule, in your time, that is under His reign, in His kingdom? I know it's a broken record, and we say it over and over again. We pray every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. right up there. And from the beginning of this church, we have said, the work is done in prayer. If everything else goes away, community groups, praxis, all the scheduled things go away, one thing that will not go away is praying. That's where the work is done. Spurgeon talked about it over and over again, that in the boiler room, at the bottom of his church, he said, that's where the greatest work was done. These people praying for me, praying for the ministry. You want to change this city? You want to change people in your life? Pray for them. Pray. That's what Jesus shows us at the beginning of his ministry. Prayer. Join us. Pray with us. The first Wednesday of every month, we have people from all the city gather here at noon. You can take off for an hour at work to come here and pray on a Wednesday once a month. Again, you might think the pastor is being harsh on you. No, I'm telling you, that's where the work is done. Pray with us. And just when you think there is nothing more that he can do, Jesus takes his ministry to the next level. In 2 Kings, a man came to one of the kings of Israel and said, can you heal me of leprosy? And the king said, am I God that I can heal leprosy? That's how crazy it was for something like that to happen. To have leprosy was to mean 
basically a death sentence from your friends and from your neighbors and those around you. You were ostracized. You were unclean. You were separated from the community. Not to be touched again. Not to be around again. It was horrible. But here in Jesus, verse 41, what does he do to someone with that sentence? He's moved with pity. And he stretches out his hand and touches him. And heals him. You know, here's the thing about miracles. We think, oh, miracles, it, it's suspending the natural world. It's something that's supernatural and weird and different. I would argue to you that, in fact, Jesus' miracles do not suspend the natural world. It actually restores the world and how it should be. When I talk to my secular friends... And they talk about, you know, death and loss of life and disease and all these things. And they say, this is horrible and this is so bad. I say, why? That's just the way it is. That's the way the world is. I'm baiting them, right? Maybe you think that. It's nice. I trust so I can say that to them, right? But then in the dialogue I say... No, I think you think it's not the way it's supposed to be because ingrained in us is we know that we are supposed to have life. That there should be no disease. There should be no death. That's the way the world should be. And Jesus is breaking into the world, a broken world, to establish the world it should be, to restore it. His ministry is restoration. He's putting the natural world back. My favorite thing about the movie Hoosiers is one character. The character is Scooter, the town drunk. His son is on the basketball team. It's played by Dennis Hopper. Nominated for Academy Award for his role. And what makes it intriguing is that Dennis Hopper struggled with alcoholism too. And you see in this movie that Norman Dale, the coach of the team, he brings this guy that's been ostracized by the community, the community belittles and talks down about. He brings him to be on the bench. To coach with him. To restore him. People don't get it. They don't understand. And as I watch the movie, I say, what would motivate Norman Dale, who's trying to find himself in this community and win games, to bring a drunk to be on the bench with him? And it's because you see through the story, Norman Dale realized that he was that person too. That also needed to be restored. 
When you go through these stories of Jesus and you hear about these characters and these people, here's the thing. We can't just feel for the leper. We have to understand the leper is us. We too have the curse of death. We too are untouchables next to God's holiness. But God has reached down from heaven to earth and he has lived among us and he has taken our curse, our death sentence, our leprosy upon himself so that we would be restored. He restores broken people so that he would show his reign in his kingdom and we would fall under his authority. Who are the untouchables in your life? Who are they? That neighbor with the sign in their front lawn that you say, I, I can't believe they have that sign out front. That coworker that makes you so angry that you're like, I can't even talk to them. I will actually turn around and go the other way when I see them. A family member that when you are together at Thanksgiving or Christmas, you make it a point really not to talk to them. Who are those untouchables? Maybe someone of a different race in our city. Someone that's homeless. People say, I, I can't enter into this. But here's what Jesus is doing. He's showing us that when we come under his reign and we come under his kingdom and then are restored ourselves, that then we can reach out to the untouchables and we can know they can fall under his reign too and that we can be restored in relationship with them. Right off the bat, Right away, Jesus is powerfully restoring people to display the reign of his kingdom. Will we fall under his reign? And will we live it out in those we are around?